This is Erica in Edmonton, Shannon in Durham, and Chip in Durham. Welcome to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 98, A Tragedy of Telepaths. Yes, thank you for joining us as we make our way through the fifth and last season of Babylon 5 with this episode that's sort of, I guess, correctly titled. Um, It didn't seem like it was the most tragic thing in the world, but it had telepaths. That it did. That it did, and uh, the they all seem to have pretty much the same hairstyle as this time. <laughs> That's true. There was there was a uniformity of quaff, <laughs> a uniformity of quaff. <laughs> if we did if we did funny titles for our episode podcast episodes, that, that would, be, would be the one for this yeah. one. <laughs> uniformity Score. of quaff right yeah. out the gate. Uh, apparently, JMS mm-hmm. had help this time. He wanted something along the lines of a murder of crows, a pride of lions, and apparently John Copeland is the one who came up with a tragedy of telepaths. Ah, well, you know, it it works. Uh, that was actually one of Stephen's comments as soon as that uh, as the title appeared on the screen. Stephen was just like, oh, so that's what a group of them is called. Well, I guess it makes sense. They are utterly humorless. So. <laughs> We haven't we we really haven't had a single jokey telepath all season, have we? I mean, unless you count Lita, because she's she's had some some moments that have been have been lighter, more more by her annoyance have we been amused. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, there's no and and of course you know you get you get Bester being amusing in a dark and terrifying way. <laughs> yeah, not quite the same again. Yeah, we don't like Bester. We appreciate how good Walter Koenig is, but we don't like Bester. <laughs> yes, there you go. Uh, well, why don't we why don't we jump into things? If you are dipping into Babylon Five after a while, or just jump starting for some reason right here, this is what you need to know going into this episode. Interstellar Alliance President John Sheridan has withdrawn his protection for a colony of telepaths on Babylon 5 after they pilfered secrets from the minds of the various ambassadors on the station. Ambassadors who are all up in arms about mysterious, deadly attacks being made against their shipping lanes. Some of the telepaths scattered about the station, some have welded themselves into a section of down below. Also, Centauri Ambassador and soon-to-be Emperor Molari and his Narn bodyguard Jakar are on Centauri Prime. And that pretty much brings us to A Tragedy of Telepaths, in which Captain Lockley's log entry tells you pretty much everything I just did as she prepares to move forward with solving the telepath problem. To do that, she invites our old buddy Bester back to B5 and pays a little visit to the sealed in telepaths. Sadly, they refuse to leave, so she agrees to let Bester have them if they can be removed safely. But the telepaths who are not sealed in attack and kill two people before those folks could have burned through the door to get to the sealed telepaths. Meanwhile, Sheridan and Delenn try to calm the Alliance members, some of whom who have found incriminating evidence about their fellow Alliance races. The evidence was clearly planted, but tensions are so high, Sheridan and Delenn have to deploy White Stars to keep the peace, and the Alliance members are not happy about it. Over on Centauri Prime, Jakar and Londo discover that Jakar's old attaché, Natoth, the real Natoth, has been held prisoner in the palace for over two years. They use subterfuge and booze to smuggle her off-world and back to Narn, which Londo finds exciting. And that's the tragedy of telepaths. 
uh, which starts, as I said, with a voiceover exposition dump. Chip, I'd like to ask you how you felt about that. (laughs) I did not feel good about it at all. Mind you, I like Tracy Scoggins. I like Lockley. But this is just like it, it, it. The cadence even was just like what I think is sort of the low point in opening uh, monologues. The uh, Vanova one where she talks mm-hmm. about how once the Vorlon's gone to ground, I worry or something like that. You know, the, just, yeah. just mm-hmm. it, it's kind of a it, it's kind of a banal exposition dump broken up by the something that we've never seen before on Babylon 5 and tracy scoggins was definitely a figure of fine health uh when this (laughs) when this was recorded that that is that is very plain and i didn't find it particularly exploitative but it was it still seemed awfully gratuitous so no this is possibly my least favorite (laughs) exposition of the entire season series series I have yes, I have wow. opinions. Um <laughs> I agree. I I think it was a blunt instrument instead of a a fine one. I think there were sort of a couple of different things going on for this. Number 1, I think JMS was trying very hard to build up the telepath issue even more strongly if he felt that, you know, whatever has been shown so far wasn't enough. Um he's trying to show us that just how desperate Lockley is that she's actually going to call Bester back. I think that was one of the reasons for laying on so thick just how huge of a problem this is for her. Because we know that she had, you know, she Bester came before, she was nice to him because of her previous experience. She heard, you know, Garibaldi and Sheridan's opinions and found a way to trick Bester or, or to deny Bester access to the telepaths. So she wasn't exactly on his side. And for her to decide to call him back, I think JMS felt like he needed to justify it a bit more strongly. As far as the wardrobe choices, I think there were two reasons for that. I think, number one, JMS was taking an opportunity to show that Lockley is a different character from Ivanova. We, I don't think personally among us, have had problems with thinking, what if Claudia Christian had stayed? What if she was in the role instead? But I found myself making comparisons. Ivanova would wear the, you know, lovely dark blue nightgown. You know, she wasn't shown staying in shape like this. I think this was to show that Lockley is her own person, a different character, obviously dedicated to her health as much as um, everything else in her life. And I also think that JMS was trying to sort of prepare a bit for when she, you know, rips off the jacket and then goes through the tunnel. That if he had had her do that without sort of showing how she tends to dress on her own, that might have made some viewers sort of blink and go, wait, why? So those are my reasons. Yeah, Stephen was very baffled by this uh, when we watched it because so much of the exposition dump is telling us the things that have just happened in Mm -hmm. the episodes previous. Uh, So he immediately jumped to the one you know place on the internet that he doesn't consider spoilery, and that was he looked up the air dates Mm -hmm. of these episodes because his immediate thought was was there one of those weird mid-season breaks? Has it It been four months since the previous episode that would make sense? yeah, and like, you know, is JMS trying to refresh everybody? But no, that that was not the case. Um it was it was just another episode. But I do I do think that because they had moved to a new network and were trying to pull new viewers 
in. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe this was a little bit of throwing a bone to anybody who had jumped on a little bit late or even just, you know, people who aren't super familiar with the Babylon 5 world just trying to reinforce the things that that they would have have already known. And and for viewers like us who had been watching all the way along or for a long time, it it did feel like a throwback to an Ivanova voiceover, you know, mm-hmm. so it's it's not like it felt like it came out of nowhere. But I I, it, it just it did feel like it was laying things on very thick and yeah. telling us things that we probably would have known if we would have been paying attention. Yeah, we just came out of In the Kingdom of the Blind, which <laughs> felt more like today's sort of pseudo yeah. prestige television where there where it, it felt it felt pure serial and mm-hmm. we didn't get a whole lot of opening exposition that I recall. But now we're sort of back to mid-90s patterns where every episode could be somebody's first. Yeah. And, and, and that and they rem- just... reminds me, didn't um, didn't the master list show that In the Kingdom of the Blind was in a different order? I think it's italicized on the master guide. We have skipped an episode that so... we will talk about later right. because so maybe... spoilers. Yeah, but maybe <laughs> that might be another reason is that uh, because we are watching this in the preferred order instead of the order that it actually aired. So maybe that I don't know. I no, <laughs> I, I I I am not on board with that. I think that JMS is just falling into returning returning to form, mm-hmm. as it were, for <laughs> uh, mid nineties <laughs> weekly television. But I do, I do take your point, Shannon. I I think that uh, that I hadn't thought about it in terms of really setting the stage for this decision that feels pretty big mm-hmm. and and bad, as, as Stephen seemed to feel as we were watching it. Uh, so so yeah, I I like that idea that that he was really trying to. This is a, one of the few ways that we have to get into the heads of these characters, since you know we don't hear what they're thinking. The mm-hmm. captain's log thing is is the closest that we get to that. So especially so knowing... a character that we still don't know that mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Yep. She's brand so, new. Mm-hmm. And not only does it does it show us how. Uh, sort of desperate she is in order to do this, but it shows us how reluctant she is. Right. If she had, if all we had seen was her making the call to Bester, we would not really know if that's something that she's been wanting to do all along or what. And the fact that she seems like she's not terribly into it and she recognizes that nobody's going to like this idea, but she doesn't have any other ideas. Mm-hmm. I think that that's, it, it serves a purpose. So I'm I'm glad it's there, even if it does feel pretty clunky. It does surprise me a little bit that Sheridan and Garibaldi are and and Delin to a certain extent, you know, all three of those characters are kept at arm's length from Bester. This is Lockley and Zach's problem. It's mm-hmm. station operations, of course. But well, you, you gotta think that Sheridan and Sheridan's you gotta washed think that, his hands of them, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think when Sheridan found out that you know, and clearly, clearly, it would have happened off screen. But when Sheridan found out that Bester was on the way, um, he probably used a few colorful metaphors. Well, I actually kind of <laughs> wonder whether surprised. whether he found out at all at this point. Maybe he finds out next episode because you know he's too busy dealing with the other problem that we'll get to in the other plot. So very true. Very true. But before we get there, I want to talk about something that I am excited about, and that is Natoff. Yes, Natoff. <laughs> The yep. real one. 
<laughs> she's back I, I still remember watching this for the first time and flipping the heck out because I was so excited to see that she was alive and that she was back and that it was Julie Caitlin Brown again and it was just um, yeah I was I was thrilled did it, did it hit you guys that way too well I was thrilled and then I was a little let down and the reason mm-hmm. for that is it's Julie Caitlin Brown, who was way, 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 way more vivacious and fiery and strong than mm-hmm. Mary Kay Adams, who played Natoth in the second season. Uh, and yet the circumstances of right. Natoth being in this story, she has been imprisoned. She is wasted away. She is weak. She is ill. And, you know, we get a couple of lines. And, of course, we've got... Julie Caitlin Brown doing a great job of reading the lines and being a Natoth who has been imprisoned and tortured. You know, she's giving it all she's got. I really missed the old Natoth, even though there was no proper reason for the old Natoth to be there because mm-hmm. because because solitary confinement. Um, yeah, so, I, I kind of agree with what Chip says. If if there had been time to work in even another scene, like at the end when they're like putting her on the cruiser um, and, and getting her away, where just, you know, even just the tiniest flash of her old spark back, you know, she says something to Londo just to show that, you know, now that she's out, the first step towards her recovery, of course, I don't expect her to recover immediately. That's, you know, that's not... Uh, mm-hmm. that's not logical. Uh, but yeah, that that would have been nice. Yeah. I mean, I think the one moment that we had that felt felt like that was when Londo comes in and is, is starting to unlock mm-hmm. her chains. And she says, you know, that, you know, I'll kill you at the first chance I get. Right. And he's like, you'll get in, <laughs> you better get in line, lady. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, but but yeah, I think and, and, and Stephen also was a little bit perplexed by this because he was like, OK, well, that's kind of a weird thing for them to just suddenly go back to like Natoth and then yeah she's there and they save her and then she's gone so it just it didn't seem to serve much of a purpose um, I have a theory so that he... has to wait until spoiler space oh okay so. mm. but yeah so I mean he was he was happy to see her as well just like I was but I I do agree that it it didn't quite feel like the same Natoth and she's been through so much and it was it was sad so it was sad at the same time as being happy, but it is nice that 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 she's not dead and that we got to have some moments. And I'd say that the way that she is discovered delighted me to no end because mm-hmm. I thought that the the conversation between Londo and Jakar at the beginning just felt very natural mm-hmm. and very much like many conversations that we've seen them have over the last couple episodes. And the, <laughs> Londo's just absolute dismissiveness. Ugh, you know, no Centauri would eat it fresh. I don't even know where you got that from. Right. And and the fact that like I didn't twig at all when he said that because it just sounded like a Londo thing to say. So then Jakar sort of slowly coming around to the realization and then them rushing off together to, to figure mm-hmm. it out was uh, – I thought yeah. that was well done. Yeah. It's really well done. Natoth's presence in this story really elevates Londo and Jakar and right. Peter Jurisic and Andreas Katsoulis. They've got They've got a lot to do here and they were possibly at risk of – turning into a double act or buddy cop, you know, mm-hmm. sort of characters. You know, they've been on a journey of forgiveness and redemption. They have become more friendly. And it's been just sort of wonderful to see. And then they find out about Natoth. 
and we find out, we watch that these are still the same people they right. have always been. Right. Londo does not come easily to feeling like he's got the agency to do something or to mm-hmm. do the right thing. You know, he is still somewhat risk averse. And once he finally comes through it on the other side, you know, he feels kind of exhilarated by it. Shades of uh, voice in the wilderness. Jakar may be in a position to forgive, but he is certainly not forgotten. And he is not taking it when it looks like Londo is reverting to type. Mm-hmm. Jakar will not be moved. He is a force of nature at that point. Mm-hmm. I also thought Lando's uh, his reactions and the things his his plan and his his speech in the uh, in the jail cell. Mm-hmm. He had a couple of really inter- interesting things to say about the nature of of a monarchy and right. the, you know the nature of the type of society that uh, that Centauri Prime is. Did that jump out at you guys too? Very much so, uh, because you know for a few minutes there it felt very long winded, like you know JMS is off on a roll and just you know couldn't see where he could you know cut some lines or tighten it up but it does demonstrate we as what we have seen all along throughout the series is how centauri society is quite frankly even though they still have you know this military might that they showed against the narn and uh, other races during the shadow war their society is kind of rotten to the core because they have let themselves fall into such decadence you know, between uh, the story about, you know, the little girl orders the protection of the flower and 200 years later, somebody figures out, oh, wait, that's what that was for. Also, the mm-hmm. the woman that they wind up, you know, using her clothes to decoy the Toth out, she just sort of shrugs and says, yeah, Cartagia played these games with me, too. <laughs> just like it's nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, that I think is, you know, meant to sort of raise some eyebrows that just so and especially with the escape, uh, Londo just saying flat out, all I have to do is act like a total drunk jerk. And we'll just be able to walk out the door because the Centauri are too intent on not seeing what they shouldn't. Mm-hmm. All of these things just add more detail and characterization to show us um, what this society is like. I think we do also <laughs> inadvertently get the answer to a question that we posed at some point in a previous episode, I think, because uh, we have we've had different uh, pronunciations of Cartagia or Cartasia. And mm-hmm. I think at one point we were trying to determine if somebody was just being disrespectful by using the wrong pronunciation. Uh, this the, the Centauri woman here says Cartasia. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just inconsistency in the uh, in, in the direction. <laughs> yep. Or the or the actors. Yeah. Or exactly. accents. Well, I mean. I, I, how many times has Han Solo been called Han Solo in various yep. of, various of the Star Wars movies? It's yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. very true. I will interject and say that I could have done without the guard story. Whenever you begin the, the a story with that, that's what monarchy is like, and then you end the story with. As I said, that's what's monar- what monarchy mm-hmm. is like. <laughs> you can cut out everything. One of those. Yeah. at one of those and just mm-hmm. yeah i don't know i liked it i really i thought that was a a good illustration that drove the point home the illustration he itself didn't... yeah i just I, I felt like just in in the writing of it i think jms could have tightened that up a bit yeah yeah maybe i mean it, to me honestly starting with that's what monarchies are like that that didn't need to be there i would have cut that line out but left everything else as it was because i liked it mm-hmm. But let's uh let's let's jump 
jump uh, off of Centauri Prime and head back over to Babylon 5 and and talk a little bit about Lockley and her plan to deal with the telepaths, which, I mean, in that opening voiceover, and she just says, you know, I don't think anybody's going to like the solution I've come up with. I, I, I mean, the solution is bester. It's not like there's actually a solution. The solution is to call somebody else to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. So I have to admit I was a little bit let down by that being her solution. I I, I thought maybe she's going to come up with something really clever and interesting that everybody was going to hate. But no, it was was calling bester. So and, you know, Stephen's immediate reaction was bester. He's not one to help. (laughs) Yeah, we know that. And like I said, I think that's part. Yeah, that that they that JMS had to drive the point home that Lockley, at least, can't see any other way to deal with this. You know, you know, and even, you know, even then she still finds a way to get in there to talk to Byron face to face and try one more time. You know, even though Bester's already on the way, you know, she still uh, makes that effort. They invited her in, but I think it was pretty clear that she was hoping to mm-hmm. find a way to talk to them when she arrived down there. Yeah. So I think that, that that sort of matched with with the voiceover at the beginning, you know, not just not just wardrobe wise, mm-hmm. uh, does does have a nice sort of continuity of character. It's I think JMS is still showing us who this captain is mm-hmm. as a person. Yeah, I think it also serves well um, her interactions with Zach and the crew also kind of show, you know, what kind of what kind of captain she's turning out to be. Uh, you know, the fact that she, you know, turns around and says, okay, no, I'm going in. And Zach is just like, I object. And she's like, yeah, noted. I'm still doing it. And he just rolls his <laughs> eyes. It's like, you know, Zach knows what this is like. He has seen Garibaldi and Sheridan do this. Um, maybe as far back as Garibaldi and Sinclair. You know, he, mm-hmm. he has seen that these captains of this space yeah. station just go right in and get their own hands dirty and don't let him do his job. So. Yeah, he even he even figures out what's happening before Lockley tells him he's going. She's going to do it. You know, he's he, she starts asking about ventilation shafts, and about halfway through the sentence, he's like, "Oh, wait." Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. And then redirects the redirects it because he realizes now that he's talking about her doing it. So mm-hmm. that that's pretty that's pretty savvy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It is a good moment between them. Although I have I have one nit to pick with with this part of it, and that is. So uh, Zach is saying the reason it's taking so long is a guy can cut for X amount of minutes um, until they, you know, get uh, messed with by the telepaths. Mm -hmm. And then it takes another half an hour to get somebody else down there. Why don't they just have a line of people like, you know, 20 yards away? And when one person gets, you know, picked off, they just bring in the next technician. They know it's been happening. Yeah, that that does seem like a, a poor planning on somebody's part. I don't know if that's just sort of to emphasize that B5 is still running on, you know, less than optimal manpower because things are still mm-hmm. recovering from the the Earth Civil War, who knows. But yeah, that that did ring some, to me as like a a way to stretch out the <laughs> tension. Yeah, and yep. and to certain to a certain extent to stretch out the episode period. This mm-hmm. episode feels padded to me. It does. It really does. I found it interesting that with the the telepaths who chose to leave Byron, who, you know, they they weren't willing to give up on the idea of violence. And hey, guess what? Mm-hmm. Violent telepaths are violent. We got more FaceTime with them and they actually got to speak. Well, two of them right. got to speak. I, I don't know. It felt abrupt to me to suddenly be hearing what these characters are thinking after not mm-hmm. after having them just be faces in, in the crowd and not hearing from them before. 
Yeah. I don't know. Did, did it feel that way to you guys or am I just being a little harsh? Well, no, there, there's a bit of that. It's just, you know, sort of for whatever reason, the necessity of, you know, JMS has not gone the route of having us hear their voices. Like he's done that once in a while with telepaths, I think, of, you know, of, of the voiceover trick to show them uh, communicating mm-hmm. via thoughts. But I guess saving money because he can't have all the different telepaths voices because then he's got to pay more money. But yeah, it was a bit disconcerting. And, you know, I was trying to just put that down to the nature of television. What kind of bothered me a bit was these guys are telepaths. Now, granted, we don't know how strong of telepaths they are. And I was just like, okay, I understand the need for weaponry to back yourselves up. But why aren't you like just sort of sending, you know, visions into these guys' heads and and taking them out that way? Maybe because Bester was there and Bester was already blocking everything. I because just, he did possibly. I just he did don't. specifically say I'm blocking, so maybe yeah. it's a cloud yeah. of blocking. I I think that they're just not that strong. We've been lulled into uh, sort of a false sense, you know. We've got Bester, we've got Lita, who's tremendously strong. You know, we've yeah. encountered we've encountered a lot of strong telepaths in the Babylon Five universe, but most telepaths are like. Talia and Lita in the beginning, you know, the commercial mm-hmm. telepaths, the people who mm-hmm. can do who who can only do deep scans, you know, with the consent of the scanning recipient and stuff like that. These telepaths could only get surface thoughts from the ambassadors in the mm-hmm. previous episode. So all that being said, I do agree with you that they are just well quaffed thugs at this point. <laughs> Their plan to get guns out of the armory, it's them being muscle. And I do not believe them as being particularly muscly. And yet we've got, you know, Sheridan and Garibaldi talk about, you know, that's the biggest threat at the moment. You know, Byron and his group are not the biggest threat. They're just holed up and waiting. But it's the ones who got out. It's the ones who got out, but he's they're thinking sabotage. They're not mm-hmm. thinking about uh, you know, they're not thinking about taking over a guard post and uh, making off with mm-hmm. weapons and shoving a guy into the glass and shooting people. You know, I think that this is a case where Tony Dow was asked for more action adventure directing chops than he necessarily has. Because I think that I think that there is stuff that could have been done with the telepaths and misdirection and uh, distra- mm-hmm. you know making a guard think he'd heard something somewhere else and right. things like that to make the combat scenes more plausible. Or or how much of that was uh, JMS trying to you know differentiate because Byron has been preaching nonviolence, 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 and while we've been sort of taking that to mean no attacks whatsoever. I don't know if JMS was trying to show the contrast of the people who broke with Byron actually, you know, picking up guns and shooting people rather than using subterfuge. Yeah, they, they've also become vandals, too, because we've got somebody like literally spray painting. Yeah, <laughs> literally. Oh, yep. Yeah, yeah, that's the I think that goes back a bit to the, you know, anti-authoritarian, you know, propaganda at the street level. Mm-hmm. That illusion. Yep. And I mean, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out with Bester showing up at the end, because we really didn't get very much Bester. I saw Walter Koenig's name in the opening credits, and I think I was expecting more. And and then he just sort of shows up at the end. And mm-hmm. it was he did have a very, I thought, interesting scene where he draws a super clear line between his people and Zach's people, uh-huh. and the station mm-hmm. people. Uh, which, yeah. you know, that's a thing that I knew about Bester, but this seemed like a moment that made it all much more clear. 
I did like that one scene when he starts blocking the guy with the welding torch from seeing the illusions of that mm-hmm. there's a bomb there. And all of the telepaths draw back from the wall. And that makes mm. Bester seem super powerful and super scary, mm-hmm. especially when uh, I think I can't remember if Byron was in that scene, that particular scene. I don't uh, think but, he or Lita were, neither no, one. But but everybody mm-hmm. else draws back from the wall, except for one woman who looked like she missed her cue. And they just <laughs> left that shot in, and that drove me crazy. Aside <laughs> from that, um, mm-hmm. aside from that, I do like to see that it demonstrated that Bester is someone to be feared. Uh, and it's little moments like that that help, you know, Walter Koenig's a little guy. He's not he, he's not particularly physically threatening and that's kind of the point because he's a psy mm-hmm. cop. But mm-hmm. that's a that that's a pretty cool moment there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually I I if Stephen will yell at me if I don't say this. I apologize <laughs> in advance, but the uh the first the first time that they showed all of the telepaths like leaning toward the wall and sort of caressing it and stuff uh, as the guy is trying to to weld outside. Uh Stephen just says, "Are they doing a mind weld?" <laughs> and then he's like, "Write this that down. Write that down." This podcast is over. <laughs> uh, hey, I apologized first at least. But yeah, he was he was pretty proud of himself for that one. Um yeah, he was the, he was also a little bit interested in just Byron's taking control when when Lockley is is in there with him and uh, asking everybody else, you know, what what about you guys? Like, mm-hmm. you know, do you want to stay here and die? And everybody's just obviously once again, they say nothing. But uh, but Stephen was just like, is he becoming David Koresh? Like, is that <laughs> like is that where this is heading? And I was just like, well, it doesn't look good. Right. But uh I, I look forward to seeing how this turns out um, and and the psychop like shock troops marching in at the end seemed like a pretty uh, pretty effective note to end on mm-hmm. uh, in terms of serialized television. Like I'm interested in coming back and seeing yeah. what happens. Yeah. Right. It's made very evident. Lockley tells him directly, you know, you picked a really, really bad time for your grandstanding. Um, yeah. The episode does draw a thread together between the telepaths actions and the backdrop of the uh, attacks on shipping lanes and the mistrust between the alliance races so byron's idealistic move has bit him in the butt and now his people are trapped garibaldi and sheridan have a conversation where you know they're they're not the problem because all they can do in there is starve Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, Byron presents as an individual who is still going to stick to his guns because of his ideological beliefs and his sense of justice. But he also looks like somebody who knows that he's not going to win this one. Mm-hmm. Yep. And and yeah, it is a terrible, terrible time for any of this to have gone down. Even if he had gone about it a, a better way, it still probably would have been uh, an uphill battle an uphill sell because of all of the trouble that the squabbling ambassadors are having you know, sort of on the other side mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> high five so sheridan delen are, are tap dancing at this point to try to get more time to figure out what the heck is happening and we've got this very clearly planted evidence which i mean it, 
I assumed that that was the case the very first time I saw this because I was just like, I really mm-hmm. don't think that the Prakiri are the kind of race to just like suddenly start, you know, smashing at people, even if I hadn't already known that Centauri ships were involved. And it bothered me a little bit that everybody just kind of ignored the fact that that Sheridan says, hey, we really examined these things. They were planted. Yeah. And, what? And it's it's not like people. Of course, they're not going to immediately circle circle the wagons because this is a, a new alliance. But I I don't know. I I felt like that was a piece of information that it made the Drazi look like um, petulant babies. <laughs> I want to say for yeah. just kind of ignoring that and still being annoyed. <laughs> yeah, n- number one, uh, I would have thought that the um, other races could have discovered that these you know pieces of metal were cut from ships instead of blown off. That seems like something that. You know, anybody doing a thorough analysis would have figured out. And number two, I, I feel like we've got this sort of JMS making the ambassadors as clever as he needs them to be. Because mm-hmm. it just feels like, you know, so there's there's times when they are very smart and very empathetic and get it and get on board. And then there's times like this where after all of the supposedly coming together after the Shadow War and they're going to fall apart this quickly? I guys make up your minds well remember how he got them to ally during the shadow war in the first place by tricking everybody you know don't look over here there's (laughs) absolutely nothing happening here yeah but Um, i I just feel like success ought to have you know bred a little bit more strength than it has but maybe i'm just being hopeful (laughs) yeah i think (laughs) you're an idealist i think that there's also the point that these governments saw themselves as coming into this alliance for mutual trade, mutual cooperation, mutual defense against an outside enemy. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody likes to think like that they're giving up their own sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And this is the first moment when Sheridan pulls rank against them, and mm-hmm. he uses the terms of the alliance against them directly. I mean, he's got... White stars pointing guns at them, and white stars are significantly more powerful than any of the other ships that we've seen, at least the former non-aligned worlds have. I'm not sympathetic to the ambassadors, but I'm sort of sympathetic to the situation where these sovereign governments are not just going to back off and assume the goodwill of the other races. I mean, Mm -hmm. I mean... The Drazi have been belligerent in this season already. You know, mm-hmm. they're not going to believe yeah. that the Brakiri are going to be any kinder than the Drazi themselves would be. So it's a plausible situation for me. Sheridan and Delin win this one, but it's at a cost, you know, and part of that cost is trust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you even have the, the the Drazi just coming back and saying, you know, every great rule or whatever, it's, it's just, there's one mistake that leads to the fall or something something mm-hmm. to that effect. And and this was yours, very. I just expected like a, a crack of thunder behind him and dun, 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 <laughs> uh, which that would have been too much. But It's the same alliance, Erica. I keep coming back to this. I keep poking at you a little bit. It's the same alliance that we saw in Rising Star that uh, brought the Earth Alliance in with a flyby. Yeah, it's the same. It's the same muscles being flexed. It it really is. Yeah. And this time they've signed up for it, which that that in and of itself probably has to rankle a little bit. 
it's like, you know, when your your parents tell you to do something that, you know, you really should do, but you don't want to. But they're your parents and, you know, deep down that they're right. And that sucks. And like, you know, they have they have the right to do it. And yeah, they're they're chafing a little bit. When was the last time you talked to our teenager? <laughs> well, I do have a couple of other things uh, that, that Stephen pointed out. You know, the, the episode ended and I asked him, uh, you know, actually, I didn't even ask him anything. The first thing he said was, oh, calling Besser isn't a good solution. I'm like, oh, why? He's like, well, he brought in all the Psychops guys. And, and he goes, and, and this may be speculation, but... I think there may be a doings, a transpiring. Like, I don't even know what that means, but that's what he said. Um, he he thought it was he thought it was a good episode. He didn't say that over over fondly. Uh, he thought that, like I said, that uh, it was an interesting callback to just bring Nat- Natoth back after all of that. Um, but he really felt like this episode was just a precursor to bad things happening, mm-hmm. where a couple of pawns move, but no knights, no bishops. And uh, he's like, yeah, we, we kind of went from something not happening to something almost happening, mm-hmm. which I feel like is a pretty good description of this episode. Yeah. Um, just occurred to me to ask about, you know, sort of a Byron check-in. I, yeah, I felt, you know, again... Byron tends to be only as good as the writing. Um, and I think this was pretty solid writing this time for him. He doesn't go flowery. He doesn't go over the top. Mm-hmm. He just presents himself as somebody who has chosen his path and he's just not going to deviate it from it no matter what. And he's accepted it. You know, the the idea is that, you know, mm-hmm. shaking Lockley's hand and saying, I think this may be the last time we see each other. Um, I thought Robin Atkin-Downs did a pretty good job this episode. Yeah, I felt like he underplayed it enough that 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 I liked it as well. Mm-hmm. I feel like I think Steven is is just sort of finding Byron to be kind of I don't want to say annoying cuz that that would be putting words in Steven's mouth and he hasn't used that, but he just he I think I feel like he's just sort of been rolling his eyes at uh, at Byron and the telepaths for a few episodes now. Yeah. Um not not with any great disgust, but just oh boy, here we go. That kind of thing. Yeah, well, I mean, I feel there's a bit of, you know, like I said, you know, Byron had ideas and Byron had plans, but Byron doesn't seem to have adaptability to sort of, you know, back up mm-hmm. and find a better way to accomplish the same goal. Hence, tragedy. <laughs> the, the fatal flaw in Byron's character is that he cannot deviate from the path he has laid out once he learns, you know, what the Vorlons did and that rage mm-hmm. is triggered in him. He can't adapt from that. He can't find a better way to get what he wants working with people so or being I'd, patient. I'd say, yeah, I'd say the only other character in Babylon 5 who is remotely as ideologically driven as Byron is Dolin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everybody else is way more practical. And Dolin is at least better at being practical because she's had a lot of practice. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, I think it's time to assign some homework, and that homework for next time is Phoenix Rising. Uh, and do remember that in the meantime, you can join in the conversation at b5audioguide.com. Uh, you can take part in both the spoiler-friendly and spoiler-free threads that we've got going on there. We also love it when you say hey on Twitter and Tumblr at b5audioguide. Uh, now, if you are watching B5 for the first time and you don't want to know what's to come, Please seal yourself behind several layers of metal, because out here, we're about to enter spoiler space. You have the best segues into the jump gate. 
It is it is fun to see what I can come up with. At least you didn't yell at me this time. I seem to remember that the last time you almost stormed off in a huff. <laughs> well, if well, it involves to... a pun that he didn't make, yeah. <laughs> it was it was telepath singing, Erica. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It, that's fair. I probably would have stormed off in a huff if you would have done it. So, so <laughs> there. And and we're going to have ter- and we're going to have telepath singing again next episode. Oh god. As he blows himself up. I can't wait to see what Stephen's reaction to that is because, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I question whether, and this is this is a fine episode, you know. I don't think we ever actually went down the line and said, you know, wh- mm-hmm. but this is a fine episode, I guess. Uh, but I wonder if it was really necessary. I think that I wonder if if we'd taken out the Natoth stuff. If we'd taken out the um, squabbling ambassador stuff, the rest of this could p- probably have been shoehorned into Phoenix Rising. Mm-hmm. And and it's two episodes. This just felt drawn out a little bit. So possibly a place where, you know, oh, wow, I've got a whole season to fill that I didn't expect. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe. maybe. And I, I definitely see how taking the, the Natoth stuff out could be done. I don't know if I feel that way about the Alliance stuff, because I, yeah. I think we needed mm-hmm. a reason for Delenn and Sheridan to sort of flex their military muscles. Right. In order <laughs> and to- it backs them into a corner when it's revealed that Centauri Prime, albeit mm-hmm. being uh, manipulated by the Drock, uh, is behind all of this because Sheridan said, you know, we will back you. We will back yeah. the Alliance once we yeah. find out who's responsible for this. Oops. Well, it's Centauri Prime and there we go. The Alliance turns on Centauri Prime and uh, he's he, he has he has made that promise in this episode and what's mm-hmm. he going to do about it? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He says the words. We will, you know, support any action you want to take. And there you are. And there you are. And that's, in a way, that's kind of the genius of this season. I mean, we've talked a couple of times about, you know, Sheridan's not the great, the great hero, the great driver of the story that he was in seasons two through four. And that is not the point of this season. The point is that he is not Caesar. He's the head of an alliance. And this is about what happens after the war when mm-hmm. people are just muddling through trying to figure things out you know this is the duration not the war right um so mm-hmm. um so this has kind of been carefully set up actually and i really i really hadn't remembered how this thread that's going to culminate in uh the fall of centauri prime intersected so cleanly with the telepath crisis but this episode just lays it out there mm-hmm. i do i do have to give you know character wise D- dylan and sheridan props for mm-hmm. for their their diplomacy like they are doing a pretty good job of keeping things as under control as they still are and and managing the managing that crowd of toddlers is what it sort of feels like sometimes yeah um, and I without think being them. without being especially manipulative or mm-hmm. deceptive, yeah, yeah, they're actually be, they're actually kind of being JMS's idealized politicians in a an inherently compromising environment. Yeah, uh, I also think 
that uh, Mira Furlan and Bruce Boxleitner did uh, good jobs overall, not just, you know, in the scenes where, you know, they are talking and setting this up, um, laying things out, but also during that voiceover, you know, just their, their actions, they don't have any words to share, but their expressions and their body language mm-hmm. as the um, Alliance uh, ambassadors are going all over the place um, was pretty effective. I mean, that, that voiceover is a place where I felt like I could have zoned out, but, you know, watching what they were doing while Lockley was talking um, was keeping my attention. Totally. Anything else you guys want to touch on that is yet to come? Well, like I said earlier, I'd had uh, thoughts about uh, the Natoth storyline. Yes. Because if I remember correctly, we never see her again. Um, you know, she she shows up and then, um, you know, maybe we hear about her at some point. I don't remember nope, if there's not any. Even nope, that. Not even a line mm. of dialogue. Um, I feel like this was set up to emphasize that Londo hasn't grown as much as we might have thought uh, mm. that, you know, here he is presented. Number one, we get reinforced through Natoth's retelling of the bombing of Narn and are reminded that Londo stood there and watched and did nothing, as Jakar once accused him of. He did nothing to try and mm. stop it, which made him partly responsible. And here, his first reaction you know, even though he has, like, come through with this alliance and the shadow war is over and he's supposedly part of the upper echelon of the leadership, and yet here he is presented with a dilemma and his first response is, I didn't do it. I didn't know. And, you know, it's not my mm-hmm. fault. And I'm... It, it and can I wait don't until see- I'm emperor. Right, mm-hmm. right. You know, it, you know I, we, can do it, we can deal with it later when I think I can actually do something about it. And it brings back, you know, the, the old conflicts between the two of them because of course Jakar's having none of that it's like we are going to get her out of here and we're going to do it now damn it um so i think that's partly to remind us that londo is not as far advanced as we thought and i'll have to watch more episodes to remind myself whether that makes his decision to take the keeper that much more compelling because we've had this reminder that you know if this was meant to set up that we might have more hesitation or be be more surprised when Londo takes the keeper to save his to save his people. You know, he doesn't even apologize. Right. That was something that st- stuck out to me. Like, you know, he's looking straight at Natoth and just saying, he says twice, these things just happen. These yeah. things just happen. And like, you know, I kept expecting him to say, these things just happen. I'm sorry, these things just happen. But no, there's never an apology. Yeah. Um, no. And, you know, we had just a few episodes ago with the very long night, you know, he supposedly learned the value of apologizing. He doesn't mm-hmm. do it here. No, instead, no, he, he doesn't. He, he comes up with a plan, the plan succeeds, and he's just like, like, hey, yeah, that was fun. It's like, dude. <laughs> right. I should have mentioned it before the spoiler space. There is some power in that last shot of Jakar looking out a Centauri mm-hmm. cruiser's window yes. the mm-hmm. same way that uh, yeah. Londo had looked on in horror at the bombing. You know, mm-hmm. that does that does indicate a certain amount of distance traveled for the characters. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, I, I quite liked actually, I meant to mention that as well. And I also forgot just uh, direction wise that that you have basically they're framed in the same kind of window that, that Londo was was framed in when he's watching the bombing, except that you see Londo 
and Jakar, both of them together in the reflection to start with, which I think is, is kind of kind of beautiful to show how far they've gone. And then at the very end, Londo goes off to get some food. Yeah. And it is just Jakar by himself. And yeah. I thought that that was kind of like in miniature, a little bit of an encapsulation of what these characters go through. And and uh, mm-hmm. and yeah. Or where they are, where there are still at the moment, because, you yeah. know, Londo has, you know, it, it, hey, it's a successful thing. She's gone. You know, yes, he thinks for a second to ask, you know, how she's going to be. And Jakar, you know, says it's going to be a long time before she's herself again. But yeah, it's Jakar is the one who is thinking about Natoth and thinking about his people and everything. And Londo's just like, hey, time for food. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Oh, Londo, Londo, Londo. Yeah. <laughs> it's. You haven't fixed everything yet, Londo. You can't just put it all in the rearview mirror. Mm-hmm. So, Bester, the Bloodhounds. Mm-hmm. I do not remember exactly how Byron's going to get out of that hole and into the situation where he saves Garibaldi from the scene that gets replayed from Deconstruction of Falling Stars and then finally does the Blaze of Glory thing. But although I think I still think that this is probably padded and I'm not certain that we needed this episode, uh, the fact that we get the bloodhounds arriving at the end and that stuff's going to go down tomorrow, uh, next next time, um, I do think that that is... I, think, I do think that that is effective. So we will have Bester next week and then we're not going to see him again until the format breaking the core is mother the mm-hmm. core is father episode that is completely from his perspective and then i think we're done with him mm-hmm. yeah i think you're right that's that's just going to feel i think that's going to feel kind of weird because this is going is that... to be pretty heavy yeah mm-hmm. okay i mean is that the one that resolves the garibaldi situation as well no no, no. i'm trying no, to remember be... if if no, Bester so, comes back at the end for um, any kind of resolution for Garibaldi or if he no, has to do no, it without. No, no, So the order of worship is next time Phoenix rising, and that's when Garibaldi discovers that he can't touch Bester. And then Bester comes back for the Corps' mother, the Corps' father. And then Bester is just this off-screen figure and that Garibaldi uh, cuts a deal with Lita that Lita will help him someday. And then from then on, Bester only appears in a tie-in novel and a and an unfilmed script for Crusade. Okay. So we're yeah. almost done with him. I do like that the Korra's mother, the Korra's father is the last, like, that at least we get a really good meaty Bester episode to sort of, you know, it's not exactly a send-off, but it's it's nice that we get something that's that juicy. Oh, mm-hmm. before he goes i wonder if we're going to get the proper credits for that episode on the dvd because mm-hmm. that of course mother Cora's father has the uh funny has the funny replacing the b5 logo with the psychor logo and stuff oh, like that i had forgotten about and, that and and as we have seen they don't always get the dvd uh credits mm-hmm. right yeah that's right hmm well, hashtag teaser, I guess, or <laughs> suspense. Yeah. Uh, do you think Steven's ready for the telepaths arc to be over and done with, like kaput after yeah. next next time? I think I think he'll. Do you think be fine he's expecting it? Yeah, I do. 
Yeah, because I mean, the the way that he was talking about it is just like this, you know, episode being a precursor to bad things happening, as he put it. I think I think he's expecting the the stuff to hit the fan next next mm-hmm. episode. And although, you know, from his perspective, maybe maybe not. Maybe the next episode would just be some totally random thing happening, you know, <laughs> on Minbar. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, back in the ranch. Know. Yeah, that kind of thing. But uh, but I think I think he's expecting that the next time that Babylon Five touches on those characters in that situation, that yeah, it is gonna it's gonna come to a head. To our listeners, thank you once again for joining us. Uh, we look forward to being back in a couple of weeks for Phoenix Rising. And until then, this is Erica and Edmonton, Shannon and Durham, and Chip and Durham, and you've been listening to the audio guide to Babylon Five. Mm-hmm.